Today's passage is from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, until chapter 9, verse 14. This could be found on page 1005 in your church Bibles. That's page 1005. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. Thank you very much, Candice. Um, please do keep uh, your Bible open in front of you. That will help me definitely and you hopefully. Um, we're on page 1005. Our actual passage I'm preaching is just 9, 1 to 14, but I um, thought I'd give us a run-up um, as we hear about Jesus' um, the, the new covenant, the more excellent new covenant that he's brought. Just before we get into that, um, I'm aware if you've just kind of uh, dropped into church, maybe for the first time tonight or um, you're new to Christian things, that reading may seem very strange. All this talk of kind of covenants and priests and animals. Uh, I mean, what does that have to do with 21st century Edinburgh, really? Um, everything is the answer. And I hope by the end of tonight, we'll, we'll realize that. This is actually one of the most amazing passages about how wonderful what Jesus has achieved is. It really is mind-blowing. Um, but it will take a little bit of uh, work to get there. Um, let me pray for God's help um, as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know all the things on our hearts and minds just now. Some of us are weary or grieving. Others are excited by new opportunities and a new year. But for all of us, Lord, we do pray that you'd still our hearts now to hear your voice in your word. Because we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we turn to our passage in detail, I want to introduce the key question we're thinking about this evening. Um, it's there on the top of that handout if you want to follow along where we're going. The question is this. <clears throat> How can we enter the holy presence of the living God? How can human beings who are far from perfect, far from holy and righteous and pure in every single respect, how can unholy human beings enter the holy presence of the living God? That's the key question uh, this tonight. Um, I mentioned uh, before Christmas last term in the mornings, actually, that in lots of the Western world, there is a spiritual complacency, um, a kind of moral entitlement we have uh, that assumes that if God is out there, well, he must be pleased to see me. I mean, of course he'd be pleased to see me if I gave him the time of day. I said, I think that's a symptom of post-Christian culture. We've got this cultural memory of how Jesus has made it possible to approach God. We don't like Jesus anymore, so push him to the side, but we keep the memory as if it's easy to pray to a holy God, as if he'd always be pleased to see us. Actually, if you look across most cultures across the world, human beings actually usually have a bit less confidence than that when it comes to the divine and the holy, the pure. The idea that we could automatically access the divine presence and that if we did, we'd be safe. It would be a safe experience. Actually, that's quite unusual. 
The reality is across many, many world cultures, from animism to Hinduism to Islam to various forms of spiritualism, there's a sense that if humans want to be in touch with the divine, to encounter the holy, to connect with God, we might need to put some effort in. Might need to go through some kind of ritual or cleansing or sacrifice or offering. At the very least, take your shoes off. If it's not some kind of special practice, there might be a sense it requires a special person, a holy monk or a priest or a guru to be the go-between, to present our offering or to burn our incense, a teacher to show us the way to enlightenment. And lots of those people would require a special place to operate in, a holy, kind of set-apart, consecrated location. Massive sums of money are spent globally to facilitate pilgrimages to those sacred places, whether it's to Mecca or to temples or shrines. Holy practice, holy people, holy places. It's clear that many human beings recognize that if we were ever to enter the presence of a holy God, it might require something to be done first, some kind of cleaning to be done, some kind of bridge between us, the unholy, and God, the holy, some kind of purification, because we are morally, ethically, spiritually compromised as human beings. That's world cultures. What about Christian cultures? Well, let's be honest, if you look across the wider Christian world, plenty of traditions would have their own form of those kind of things, wouldn't they? Historically, it was pilgrimages to Canterbury or to York. Today, it might be pilgrimages to Israel, the Holy Land. Or it might be viewing church buildings as sacred spaces, a space where God's presence, God's holy presence is somehow more accessible there. The cathedral is much better than a lecture hall if you want to pray. For us, I guess it might be, now we're kind of back in Morningside Road, maybe we feel a bit more comfortable than the functional one Clooney drive and a lot more comfortable than those of you who are used to hiring a, um, the, the student uh, kind of university conference center. But actually, it's not just special places that Christians sometimes will lean on to connect us with the holy presence of the living God. We can even have our own special rituals or special people. We might not rely on kind of formal confession with a priest, um, as, uh, or kind of rely on mass, as uh, Roman Catholic te te the church teaches. But we might still think, well, maybe God's more likely to listen to my prayers if the minister's with me praying, or if I'm praying when we're taking communion together, or when we're singing together, rather than at the office or the staff room or the home tomorrow morning. Let me give you some personal biography. As a teenager, and this is true, I often felt that the time I really entered God's presence properly was about once a year. I went to a big Christian uh, summer youth event, hundreds of young people singing their hearts out, uh, amazing music, like absolutely fantastic sound system and band, uplifting teaching for a week. It often felt like the gates of heaven had opened on Somerset. A surprising place, you might think, but that's where the, the conference was happening. Um, and then we all went home to a much less exciting world with normal local churches, very ordinary music. Not tonight, it's excellent, but um, just, just generally. <laughs> um, and then it, it honestly felt like the doors of heaven had closed again for another year. 
See, it's not just other cultures and religions that lean on these things, special places, special people, special practices. Even we Christians can be tempted to drift into our own kind of them, to have more confidence approaching God when we've just prayed that prayer of confession we do at the start of church on Sundays, or when we're singing and really feeling it with sincerity and fervor, not the rest of the week. Here's the stark truth of tonight's passage in Hebrews 9. And it is stark. All the global efforts to get access to God's presence through ritual purification, special practices, or through holy priestly intermediaries, the special people, or through sacred spaces and places, all of it is a tragic massive waste of time, money, hope, energy. Because it does not, it cannot open the holy presence of the living God to sinful people. And actually the fact that we as Christians are sometimes to lean, tempted to lean on those things to kind of reinforce our confidence to, to access God's presence, like the teenage version of me definitely did, I think it shows we may not have grasped how, how wonderfully, amazingly good what Jesus has actually done is. Jesus has done everything necessary to completely purify us and fully open the gates of heaven permanently. That's the amazing truth of Hebrews 9 that we're going to see tonight. Before we work through the detail, let me just remind us where we've got to, especially as I'm conscious we're now in the evenings for a few weeks in Hebrews, and we were in the mornings. So here's the kind of flow of the book so far, just very, very briefly. And if you weren't around on mornings, this is your chance to hear what we've been thinking about. We started with Jesus as the great son, the great speaker God the Son, come down to speak to us, greater, in fact, than any other speaker so far in the Bible. So greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, greater than Moses. Um, and he declares, in terms of the message he brings, he declares this great salvation. That's the message he brings. That was where Hebrews started. Then we saw that it's not just Jesus declares this salvation, he actually brings the salvation. He's the founder of salvation. How does he do that? Well, he steps into our shoes, an older brother, living the life we should have, our priest, our representative. He brings this great salvation. That was the start of the book, chapters um, one to three. Uh, then we had a huge warning, a big warning from Israel in the desert. Do not harden your hearts to Jesus' voice. He's declared this great salvation. He's achieved this great salvation as our priest. Do not harden your hearts. Don't be unbelieving like Israel in the desert. That's chapters 3 and 4. And when we get to chapter 11, this will be a while away yet, but we're going to have the positive example. Do live by faith. Don't be hard-hearted, unbelieving like Israel in the desert. Do have faith like lots of people in the Bible, Abraham, Moses, lots of others. You've got those kind of two uh, warnings and encouragements. But they mark off the bit we're in at the, mid at the moment, which is the middle. The middle of the book, the center of the book, is all about Jesus as the perfect priest. Jesus, the great priest. Not just a, an amazing king and speaker and brother, but an amazing priest. 
He's better than all the old priests and all the old ways of relating to God. In chapters 5 to 7, there was a lot about how he got the job, and that was before Christmas. But right now, in chapters 8 to 10, and so back in if you've drifted, in chapters 8 to 10, we're seeing the great covenant, the much better covenant relationship that Jesus secures. That is, Jesus gives us a relationship with God that is a massive step up in the Bible story. An amazing privilege, much more excellent, as the start of Candace's reading said. It's my prayer tonight that if we are Christians, we'll go home absolutely amazed at how good we have it through Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, my, my prayer is tonight would lead you to ask, why? Why am I not a Christian? And what workable alternative is there to approach a holy God? Right, time to dive in. Uh, let's get into the details. We've got three points uh, tonight. Um, together they form a kind of contrast. So the first two points are about the old covenant and its limitations. And then right at the end, we'll get to the new covenant with Jesus and uh, see how amazing what he has brought actually is. Um, so here's our first point. And yes, it is a mouthful. Sorry, it's quite long. Okay, point one. Verses 1 to 7. The old covenant had the best God-designated holy place, holy priests, and holy rituals ever seen on earth. The old covenant had the best God-designated holy place, holy priests, and holy rituals ever seen on earth. You can see from chapter 9, verse 1, on page 1005, that that's what he's talking about, this first covenant It's not the first covenant in the Bible. It's just first in this comparison. He's comparing one against the other. The first one is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant God made with Israel as a nation at Mount Sinai through Moses. So verse one, he tells us he's going to speak about two things in there, that the regulations for worship, that includes special people, special rituals and practices, And then the earthly place of holiness, that's the special place, the tabernacle tent. Then he tackles them in reverse order, if you look. So verses 2 to 5 is the place, and then verses 6 to uh, 7 will be the practices and the priests. Um, So we're going to start thinking about the tabernacle, um, this tent, this special place of holiness that God set up. Just as we do, though, notice um, those things that we say uh, world cultures across the nations look to, to get access to God's holy presence, are all represented in the old covenant. So you think a a sacred space would really help. Well, here's a sacred space set up by God. You think a a special person, a, a consecrated, sacred person would help. Well, here are God's chosen priests. You think some special rituals or practices, sacrifices or offerings could help. Well, here are some offerings that God himself as designated. And in, and in a few minutes, we'll see, even with the God-designated setup, even the best possible sanctuary and sacrifice and priest, even with those, access to God was severely limited. But before we get to the limitations, let's just look at how glorious it actually is. I mean, if you scan your eyes through verses 2 to 5, just look how much it speaks of the gold This is a kind of no expenses spared tent, a a sacred space where the quantity surveyor never came along and said, we could save a bit of money if we (laughs) shaved off the, or slightly less good finishing in that area. No, it was was golden, 
beautiful, expensive, rich, sacred. I realise not many of us will know what the tabernacle actually looks like. Um, so let me put a picture up. Um, I'll skip through this. Um, this is from there's a website called BibleScenes.com. Um, it's a, a free-to-use thing. Uh, I've only checked the tabernacle, so I can't guarantee any other pictures that are on there. But I think it's really helpful. Uh, this person makes kind of uh, computer reproductions of uh, things that the Bible describes. So there's the tabernacle tent. You've got a kind of outer courtyard. That's the white, the white um, curtains you can see. And then inside, a, a kind of tent within a tent, um, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, you can actually do kind of fly-throughs or walk-throughs of these. So we're going to do one of those. And I'll just talk through what we're talking about. Um, now, the first things we see... Um, uh, are not what Hebrews 9 is talking about, because it's only talking about that, that tent within the courtyard. Does that make sense? So the first bit we see uh, isn't actually Hebrews 9, but um, in we go. Um, so I was saying, if you were an Israelite, you would be able to get through the first few seconds of this video, and then you'd have to stop. Um, so an Israelite would bring their sacrifice to the, to the, the gate of the outer courtyard, and they'd present it, and they'd go in here and present it to the priests who, at that first item, that's a big altar, um, the bronze altar where there'd be sacrifices. That's where the animals would be killed. Um, uh, and from that point on, the priests are doing the action. So uh, they sacrifice the animals, and then there's a, a wash basin, the bronze wash basin, which the priests would use to purify themselves before the priests, and only the priests, go into this section. In our passage, this section is called the holy place, this is the, the, fir, um, it's the first section uh, in chapter 9. It's called the name, the first section. In there, on the left, you can see the golden lampstand, uh, which was kept burning, a uh, kind of symbol of God's presence as a light to us. On the right-hand side, there's a table with the bread of the presence. And then in front of us, you can see an altar of incense, um, which was right on the threshold. Uh, it can, in the Bible, it can be described as inside the curtain or just behind and then that curtain opens to the most holy place where we're not allowed to go. So we're stopping there, and there is more in the video, but we're stopping there. That's the tabernacle. That's what we're talking about. So have a look at verses, um, verses 2 to 5, and you can see those things mentioned, this lampstand, this bread of the presence. Now, those symbols were symbols in, the, in their golden finery. They were symbols of how good it was to have God camped in the center of Israel. Symbols of his presence, his light, of his provision and his fellowship, the, the bread symbolically there. Uh, further on, um, if you um, read on into verse 4, which goes inside that final curtain. So in the most holy place, verse 4, there was the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant, that's the Ten Commandments, Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of all these things we cannot speak in detail. This was a glorious space. Even from that virtual recreation, it is, is clearly an amazing place, full of gold, full of reminders of God's goodness and kindness and fellowship with his people. A glorious place. A God-designed place. We saw that with Jay last week, chapter 8, verse 5. God gave the instructions. God gave the blueprint. God designed that two-part tent. It was the most special, sacred space on earth. Okay, that's the place. What about the people? 
Well, as required by God's law, it was only priests who were allowed in the holy place, um, that first section. Um, So we're talking about uh, that place there. That first section is where the priests were allowed to go in. Um, Just look from verse 5. I'll read that. Oh, verse 6, sorry. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, that is the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. Striking, isn't it? These were exactly the right priests. They were from the right family. God had chosen them. That's what Aaron's staff that budded is about. That was the moment where God proved this is my priest. So this is God's chosen people, his priests, in God's built place that he designated, offering just the right offerings that he had asked for and designated. And yet even then, access was so limited. Did you notice that? Just a single high priest, just once a year, for one purpose, to spread the blood of atonement, And then he had to rapidly retreat from the most holy place for his own safety. This brings us on to our second point. What two truths was God teaching from this arrangement? Verse 8. It's very striking. Here's the first one. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. The door is not open. That's what God the Holy Spirit, as we read of the tabernacle in the scriptures, that's what he's teaching us. And you can actually see it, can't you? You, He's saying, look, you've got these two places, God's God's throne here, and like a buffer zone, an an airlock, an area of separation that no ordinary Israelite can even get into that, and no priest can get beyond that, apart from the high priest just once a year. His point is, for as long as that section stays there, God was saying the way is not open. And in verse uh, verse 9, he goes on to say that's symbolic for the present age. Present, I don't think present is talking about present now. I think it's talking about the age that was present then. So the age then present, that's what the footnote um, translates it as. So I think it's saying at the time, that tabernacle was a, a miniature version of what all humanity faced that the way to God was not open. In Genesis 3, when humanity turned against God, a flaming cherubim was put as as an angelic bouncer to the Garden of Eden and to God's presence. No entry. And those same cherubim were embroidered on that huge curtain in the temple. No entry. That's the first thing God was teaching us. God's presence was not truly open, even to his own people. The second truth, verses 9 to 10. By this process, guilty consciences were not truly dealt with. So verse 9, I'll pick it up there. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So the, the whole old covenant system could ritually cleanse people on the outside, could enable God to continue to dwell in the camp. 
but actually could never deal with what was wrong on the inside. The guilty conscience could never be wiped fully clean. Our sense of being clean and holy, perfectly holy, to approach a righteous God, well, it was never there, never possible. Now, we're going to see why that was in the next uh, few weeks as we see that the sacrifices had to be repeated, reminding us precisely the proof that the slate hasn't been permanently wiped clean, always another debt to pay. And actually, we'll see that an animal can't kind of rightly substitute for me. How could an animal pay the debt that I deserve? So there was always this nagging sense. It wasn't completely dealt with, not completely removed. All of which brings us back to where we started. As religious cultures the world over try their utmost to clean up humanity, to access the presence of a holy God. I think there's some real honesty in it, to be honest. Uh, So much energy and sincerity and seriousness goes into humanity's pursuit of purification because we recognize we are not pure, not by ourselves. I would say that of me. There are things I've done and said and thought that make me naturally unclean in the sight of a holy God. It'd be an absurd idea just on my own merits, to walk up to his spotless throne room in heaven and think I could just wander in on my own with all my compromise. And of course, the logic of this passage and the reason why I've spent so long explaining the tabernacle and explaining how glorious and God-designed it was, the logic is that if God's own special place and his own special priests and people, doing his own special processes and practices and rituals. Well, if that didn't open the door, well, how can we think anything would on earth? He could pick the greatest cathedral with the most amazing choral music and the most earnest priest in charge, wearing all the right sacred clothes that had never been taken out of the space. And you could have a year of amazing moral effort, serving others and charitable giving. And the fact is, you'd still be nowhere close to what the tabernacle offered. Or the greatest Christian youth event with the amazing band assembled. Nowhere close to what the tabernacle offered. And yet, even there, the door didn't open. The conscience wasn't cleansed, not truly dealt with. If you like, that's the the negative point of of this passage. But time now to get on to the good news, the great news, actually, of this amazing new covenant that Jesus has brought, this new relationship, this new quality of access. It was always what the Old Testament was pointing towards and promising, but it has now arrived in the coming of Jesus, in his cross-resurrection and ascension to God's right hand. So this is our third and final point. Then Jesus, the greater new covenant priest, came. And it really is amazing news. If you're getting sleepy, I know it's warm on a Sunday night, but if you are getting sleepy, please wake up for this bit. It's time to tune back in, because these um, four or five verses are the most just extraordinary news of what Jesus has achieved for his people. Let me read um, from verse 11 onwards. But when Jesus, sorry, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, they were all old covenant um, rituals, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I love that description of Jesus in verse 11. The high priest of the good things that have come. Isn't that a great description? The high priest of the good things that have come. Christians, do we realize how good we have it right now? Because Jesus didn't just pop into the most holy place section of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. No, after his death and resurrection, he was exalted to the very right hand of the throne in heaven. He passed through right into God's royal and holy presence permanently. How? Well, not by offering animals like the Levitical Old Testament priests did, but by offering himself. We'll think more about this in two weeks' time when we're back in the mornings, but on the cross, Jesus offered himself as a fitting substitute for us. He lived a life without blemish, the life we should have. And so he paid the price, the death, the judgment that we deserved. And that secures for us, end of verse 12, an eternal redemption. That is to say, the effects of his offering don't wear off. There's no best before date stamped on the cross. Eternal. It's not like the Day of Atonement they had to repeat every year. Not like the regular sacrifices that they had to do daily or weekly or every time there was a particular sin. No, his one offering eternally sets us free buys us out of our debt morally. We heard back in chapter 2, a long time ago now, that Jesus sets us free from slavery to the fear of death. And now we're finding out how. He paid his blood on the cross to buy us out of slavery, to buy us out of the judgment we deserve. That's the first huge blessing that Jesus has brought. As the forerunner, he has opened the doors of God's presence. He, as, as, as was seen as, as he died on the cross, the temple court curtain torn in two from top to bottom. And no longer is that first place, the buffer zone, the airlock. It's gone. The throne is open for approach. Actually, here's the, another amazing thing. It's not just that he has objectively opened the door... Secondly, he's purified us, purified our consciences, our guilty consciences, so that we are able to approach. Let me just read verse 14 again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In the Old Covenant, there was some degree of cleansing and outward cleansing and some degree of reassurance as the priest confessed 
uh, the sins of the people on the head of the goat, and it was sent out of the camp. There was a sense it was being banished. As, as um, a sacrifice was made and blood was put on the altar, there was a sense in which some kind of payment is being made. But as we said, it was never complete, never truly wiped the conscience clean. But Christians can say it is all paid for. Totally, fully, perfectly, permanently. I'm not just clean on the outside, putting on a good impression, wearing some nice clothes. I'm clean on the inside in God's sight. At which point some of us might raise a question, I guess. What if I don't feel like my conscience is clear? What if I still feel crippled by guilt and shame at sin? Even sin I have confessed and asked for forgiveness for. Perhaps some here never feel clean enough to actually draw close to God in private prayer. It's worth saying that I think there's a number of factors that can lead to those kind of feelings. This is one of those questions it's good to just talk to someone about. Um, It's a pastoral question rather than just a preaching question. So please do, if that's you, please speak to someone. Speak to a a Christian friend you trust or a small group leader or an elder or or any of us um, on the team. We'd love to talk with you if that's the case. Um, For some, it's it's indicative of how our health is at the moment. Um, For some, there's trauma or shame from the past that will take a long time to talk through and process. For others, there may be ongoing sin which will actually rob us of assurance if we're not battling it. Actually, for many of us, it may be that we need to spend a bit more time considering Jesus. That's what Hebrews has been getting us to do all the time, isn't it? Take a good, long look at him. Consider him. Think about what he's done. That he's entirely, fully, permanently washed us clean that his death death in our place utterly purifies us, even on the inside. I can be honest. Let let me be honest. I can find that hard to believe sometimes when um, memories come back of things I've said or I've done in the past and I I look back on with, with shame or with horror. How could I be so proud, so selfish? How could I have lacked self-control? In some ways, as I go on in the Christian, I look back more and more and think, oh man, I didn't even realize that was wrong when I did that or said that. But Jesus has washed it clean. Sometimes we need to apply this aspect of, God, of Jesus' gospel work to our own hearts. It can be shame at past sin. Sometimes the, the, I find those feelings can come where there's an area of Christian growth that I feel like I'm, I'm making really slow progress in or an area of Christian discipline that goes a bit wobbly. Maybe my, my um, quiet times or something is a bit all over the place at the moment. But of course, it's not our quiet times that make us clean enough for God. That's not what opens the gates of heaven. Jesus does, and he already has. And actually, with lots of those good things I mentioned earlier, it's good for us to gather as church. It is a special time when God addresses us from his word and we sit together under it. That's a special time as God addresses us, a means of grace. When, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion together, and eat bread and wine, it is a special time. It's a, a means of grace. But none of that is what opens the door of heaven. That's not what gives us access to the holy presence of God. And we could say the same of singing or serving 
praying or um, devotional Bible reading. They're all wonderful things, means of grace, but they remind us of the event where Jesus opened the doors of heaven so we can approach with confidence. And actually, that's the big application. Um, we, we, a long time ago, we started this section, probably can't see that, but chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, talks about approaching the throne of grace. Don't worry to turn there when we need help and mercy. Um, but this section is going to end in 10, verse 19. Another application, very much like that. Let me just read that one. And as I read it, listen out for um, why this is the response from what we've heard tonight about Jesus' work. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. How can we be so assured? Well, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because Jesus has gone right in. He holds the doors open for us. We can approach with confidence. I want to close with the final line of our passage, um, which is particularly timely for this moment in our church life, I think. Let me just read verse 14 again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What are the dead works in Hebrews? Well, for them, it was going back to the temple or the sacrifices or the priests. That was a dead end. That was never going to improve upon what they had, on, had in Jesus. What are the dead works for us? Well, I think doing anything, even good things, to try to open the door of heaven when Jesus already has. It's a complete dead end. To try and gain access to God's presence or reassure ourselves that we're fit for God's presence any other way than what Jesus has already done. It's a dead end. It's not necessary. Jesus has already done it. And so wonderfully, and wonderfully, this is the amazing bit at the end of verse 14, Christian service is never to do that. So a giving review comes up at church, as it will on Tuesday, or a serving review comes up at church, as it will on Tuesday. We're never to think about that as, well, yeah, I have messed up a bit, and maybe this can kind of make things up to God. Kind of, I know I'm not pure, but maybe if I give enough money, it will be Okay. That kind of treadmill spirituality that says, oh, I've always got to make it up. I've always got to make it up. It's the dead works approach. It's actually miserable and miserly often. We don't serve to be saved. We don't serve and give to open the doors of heaven. They are open already. And so, verse 14, we're set free to serve the living God. We serve as those already in right relationship, already pure before the throne already able to access the throne of grace for mercy and help at time of need. So one of my prayers is that this month, as we all reflect on our serving and our giving, that we would do so not with guilty consciences, but with free, generous, glad 
conscience is, knowing that Jesus has opened the door. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we are very conscious that we are still sinners in need of grace. That we do stuff up in ways we notice and ways we don't. And we pray very much that the truth of what Jesus has achieved in his once for all offering and his once for all entry into your holy presence would fill us with a joy and a confidence to make the most of our privileges. We pray that we would be a praying church and a thankful church and a serving church, knowing how you have served us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>